Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Welcome. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Robert Pearl. Now, he's the executive director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. In this role, he leads the nation's largest medical group with 10,000 physicians and is responsible for the health care provided to over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members. He is the author of the current bestseller, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care, and why we are usually wrong. He teaches strategy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, serves as a clinical professor at the Stanford Medical School, is chairman of the Council of Accountable Physician Practices. In fact, he was selected by Modern Healthcare as one of the most influential physician leaders in our nation. Dr. Pearl has also taught at the Harvard School of Business, Johns Hopkins, and the Duke University. Truly an honor. So excited, Dr. Pearl, to have you with us today. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with the name of the book. Why Mistreated? Mistreated came out of my father's experience. My father was a remarkable man, the son of two immigrant parents. He worked his way through dental school. When World War II came into existence, he joined the army. He could have taken a job behind uh, the lines in a very safe place, but instead he joined the 101st Airborne paratroop behind uh, enemy lines. Uh, on D-Day, he was captured by the Germans. He led a daring escape, uh, freeing himself and a bunch of his colleagues. Came back to the United States and raised his family. He was a remarkably energetic man. Uh, near the uh, mid part of his life, he developed some tiredness, which was very unusual for my dad. He had his spleen taken out, and all of his doctors in New York knew that he needed to have a Pneumovax uh, treatment to prevent an infection. And all his doctors in Florida knew that the same vaccine was essential. But they each assumed that someone else had given it to him. And as a consequence, he never obtained it. And he was staying at my brother's house one time in Palo Alto. And my brother found him the next morning lying on the floor unresponsive. Brought him to the hospital where my brother is on the faculty, the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford. And they diagnosed, uh, after several days, the neurococcal septicemia that although he didn't die during that three-week hospitalization, uh, he ultimately succumbed to consequences from that. So I felt that the premature death was mistreatment. Along the way, he uh, needed to see physicians on a periodic basis. My sister, who was CEO of another organization, had to miss work every day to drive him to the doctor's office. And the problem could have been solved most of the days through a digital picture or a video, but the doctor didn't offer those services. And that was another example of mistreated. And just across our whole nation, 
patients are simply not getting the care that they require. Mm -hmm. uh, we have hundreds of thousands of deaths from failures to provide the appropriate prevention, hundreds of thousands of deaths from medical error, mm -hmm. and once again, more examples of mistreatment. So when I look across the spectrum, what I saw is very dedicated, hardworking physicians trying to do their best in a broken system, and as a result of that, not because of who they are individually, not because of anything that anyone intended, the consequence, though, for people is mistreatment. And that's why I selected the term mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care, and why we're usually wrong. Thank you for sharing the tragic story of your father's mistreatment. And, you know, we all have similar stories. And yet, if you ask someone on the street, they will tell you that they love their doctor and they're happy with the care. What are your insights into this dichotomy between the reality, which you and I both know we have a lot of issues, versus the perception? Because you talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah, I, I agree completely that there is this <clears throat> duality. We believe we have the best medical care in the world, and yet the data says that we lag all of the other 20 most industrialized nations in the world. We believe that medicine in the United States is at the cutting edge, and yet the information technology is still from the last century. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe that American healthcare is structured and designed in the right way. When you look at it objectively, it most closely resembles the 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented with doctors scattered across the community, hospitals in every town. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. It simply intends volume and not value. Uh, the technology, I said, is from the last century. So the entire structure is broken, and I began researching this treated to be able to try to understand this divergence between perception and objective reality. I went back into the psychological literature much of which could not be repeated now because of ethical considerations. Mm -hmm. I looked at behavioral economics. I uh, looked at the most recent studies on brain scans. And what I found is a process where context impacts perception, which alters behavior. Think back to when you were in college and you studied the Stanford prison experiment. Right. Philip Zimbardo takes volunteers, normally normal psychologically adjusted people, Randomly assigns half of them to be wardens, gives them aviator glasses. The other half he assigns to be prisoners, gives them typical prison garb with a number, not a name. And within 48 hours, 48 hours, the wardens start seeing these fellow students as being dangerous. They start inflicting the basing punishment. At the same time, these so-called prisoners, they're just normally students, See these wardens as sadistic. They board up the doors within 48 hours. That complete perception has changed. Or here's another example. Uh, there's a gentleman named Joshua Bell, a very famous violinist, plays the Boston Symphony. Mm -hmm. And one night he played in Boston, uh, probably earned several thousand dollars. And two days later, he came to Washington, D.C., dressed himself as a beggar, went into the metro, and played the same Stradivarius violin 
for 43 minutes and made $34. If you think about it from that way, context, mm -hmm. context shapes perception. What we pay for is as much the perception of Joshua Bell in a symphony as opposed to the music of Joshua Bell. But one last example. You have uh, Stanford did a great study. They took volunteers, now they put them in a functional MRI. So now we're going to look inside their brain. And they were offered two glasses of wine. And the people pouring it were kind enough to let the research subject see the label. One was labeled $50, one was labeled $5. And they tasted the two glasses. What they didn't know is actually the wine inside the bottle is exactly the same one. Hmm. Then they went back and asked them which was the better wine. And again, you might guess that having seen the labels, they would say the $50 better, dollar was better than $5. But what was amazing is if you looked inside their brains, the reward center lit up, was activated far more on the $50 bottle, $50 label, right. than the $5 label, even though the so-called, quote, nose of the wine, the taste of the wine was identical. Much of what we're paying in that environment is based upon perception not reality. And when you start understanding that, you start seeing the flaws of the American healthcare system. You start to understand why fragmentation is problematic because now all of a sudden you see these other physicians as being competitors. Mm -hmm. And rather than fostering collaboration and cooperation, what you have are people boarding up the walls of their practice often leading to mistreatment for patients. Or if you look at how people are paid, when you're paid more for intervening, you're paying a lot more for specialty care than primary care, you start to view things like prevention as relatively unimportant. You start to see medical error. If you're gonna get paid twice when a medical error happens, why would you have an opinion, a viewpoint, a perception that would say this is really terrible. Or when you have technology from the last century and you don't have a comprehensive electronic health record. I want to stress, a lot of doctors have computers in their offices, but what they mainly do is billing and coding. Right. A comprehensive record takes all of a patient's medical information. It now looks at it, analyzes it, and presents it to the doctor in a way that all the care gaps are visible or all the opportunities to intervene and avoid complications, all the ways to better manage chronic disease are now presented to the physician at every visit. But when you don't have that, guess what? When you don't have that, what you find is that um, these things are overlooked and patients get mistreated. It's not bad people. Mm -hmm. All doctors start by being very mission-driven, very motivated, very want focused on wanting to do the right thing and then they find themselves in this healthcare context that shifts perception and changes their behavior. And I love that you talk about asking patients to demand better service and better convenience. And that's all around the same concept of the perception of consumers, the perception of patients these days is warped. And so clearly we need to help patients, consumers, demand better service, demand more convenience, because that's, of course, going to then 
hopefully incent and inspire and convince the, the medical system, the doctors to react better. Uh, a good example you give us, 200,000 uh, 200, deaths can be prevented by going to a high-performing doctor who focuses on prevention. The challenge, that, and by the way, I loved your example of Clinton, President Clinton, and his terrible choice. Uh, you know, clearly you've, you prove that even the smartest, wealthiest, uh, most well-supported people like a President Clinton can make terrible choices when it comes to their hospital and surgeon uh, when he specifically had to pick who he went to for his heart treatment. So all of this comes under sort of this umbrella of the perception and, and how consumers react when it comes to their medical options. So the question then I have for you is, how do we educate patients? How do we educate consumers? Uh, first of all, that they do have choices, that they that there is some directory out there that they can go research, find the better doctor, find the doctor that has treated more patients with their particular issue, find the bigger hospital. So that's one. How do you propose we educate? And do you feel, in fact, that maybe that we do need an education program to make patients smarter, wiser, more equipped? So the one place that I would disagree slightly with the way you pose the uh, issue is that it's less about picking the doctor than it is the health system. And I say it that way because that creates the context. If you're getting care from a multi-specialty, large integrated medical group mm -hmm. that is paid on a capitated or prepaid type basis and has a comprehensive electronic health record, now you're most likely to get the best care because you're not going to fall through all the cracks. The cracks happen in the ways that care is not integrated because doctors are not able to communicate well enough with each other. They happen in an environment where there is a major incentive to intervene and not an equivalent incentive to explain to the patient the alternatives that exist. They happen because your information is just not available. The doctor is the best he or she can, but it's not available. But let's just look at an example. The most common operation done in the United States today by an orthopedic surgeon is where they put a scope into your knee and trim away at a damaged meniscus. Mm -hmm. uh, researchers, interestingly enough, they were in Canada, because that's where the interest was in finding out the answer. Uh, looked at the outcome when you have the surgery along with physical therapy as opposed to physical therapy alone. And what they find is no difference in outcome. Interesting. So the most common thing that's happened. I'll give you another example. Hypertension in the United States is controlled about 55% of the time. The best groups, the ones that are integrated with doctors having the computers, with having the incentives to prevent are able to control blood pressure 90% of difference in the 40% lower incidence of ischemic strokes or take colon cancer. You know, colon cancer is preventable in half of the cases through proper screening. Mm -hmm. Across the United States, probably about half. These leading medical groups are able to do it 90%. Go to the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Go to their website. You'll see a thousand organizations, and you'll see the ones that are top that are now able to achieve superior outcomes. There's a lot of information out there that patients can use, but as I say in the book, I think starting with the question, who's the best doctor, is the wrong question. You gotta start with what is the context, the system, the approach 
in which I will get the best care because it will be integrated, because the doctors will have an incentive to keep me healthy, to avoid complications, to intervene sooner because they're being paid on a capitated or prepaid basis, and they're able to use the most modern technology, which is both a comprehensive electronic health record and the most advanced methods of sending video or doing a video visit, sending a secure e-message, sending a digital picture. It's the totality of 21st century care. You know, it, we accept so much less as Americans from the healthcare system than we do from travel. We do. Or we do from the banking, or we do from retail. I mean, imagine if you had to go to a bank to find that information about the dollars you have in a given savings account, but yet you do go to the doctor's office or you have to get a fax about your daughter's medical record in order so she can enter kindergarten. Or think about it another way, you know, you would never go to an airline company to get a ticket in order to fly a week from now. You want to be able to do it online to schedule the flight and to get the information. And yet, most of the time you have to call the doctor's office and hopefully get through Monday to Friday, nine to five, to get that information. We just tolerate so much less. And this goes back to the issue you raised about prevention. Our brains are afraid because it evolves over the past. The mind, the evolution of the brain is far slower than the evolution of technology and the change in society. Our brains still very much resemble the way they did 30,000 30, years ago. And 30,000 years ago, disease was threatening, and you would never want to take a chance at questioning the providers of care, whoever they might have been at the time. And now, today, as patients, we're still afraid to question that. One last example. What we know is that one-third of the time, when doctors go from one room to another, they don't wash their hands. Hospital-acquired infections is now a leading cause of death. Someone is taking the bacteria from patient one to patient two. And yet every physician who does that, goes from room to room without washing their hands, perceives that they're not carrying the bacteria. But someone is. Yeah. Someone is. And yet they've all taken courses. They all can answer every question right in an examination about the problem. They all know they have to wash their hands and the benefit of doing so. And yet they don't. And that's where this idea of context, where they're in a rush to get to an office, Mm -hmm. where they look at their hands, they look pretty clean, Mm -hmm. Uh, where the context changes the perception. They see themselves as incapable of moving a bacteria from one room to the other, even though someone is. Mm -hmm. And now their behavior, they go in there and they don't wash their hands. And now ask yourself the most important question. How many patients would be willing to say to the physician, please do not touch me until you wash your hands? Right. And I think that that's some of the changes, the informed, empowered consumer. Right. Why I wrote this treatise for the patient in all of us. And my hope is that by giving people the information, letting them know what they're not getting, they now will start to demand it. But the way they're going to demand it is not going to be at the individual physician level in many areas. It's going to be in a choice of the total system of care in which they're going to be receiving all of their medical treatment. No, so many, so many questions. But the first one, 
you refer to the fact that we patients don't demand enough. You are so right. Three trillion dollars in spending and we are putting up with antiquated poor experiences without demanding. And so one question I have, and you mentioned rest of the world seems to have progressed significantly with technology, but not not medicine and certainly not our rating system. And as I was reading your book and I was reading certain sections, especially when you talk about LeapFrog and J.D. Power Committee for Quality Assurance, those are, again, antiquated rating systems. You know, we, we look at Google's reviews and ratings on, on doctors. Again, silly, right? It's, it's not, nothing has been done, in my opinion, in a structured, professional, macro level that will allow patients to get better access to information on the system as well as the doctor within. So I had colon cancer at 35. And, you know, similar to President Clinton, um, making that decision in terms of who was going to operate on me was 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 not deeply thought out or analytical or research. It was more based on who recommended whom. And yes, we did a little bit of research and we found the number one surgeon out of Stanford and that seemed to be the right approach. Now, that's a different podcast in terms of my personal experience and the challenges that I face and the complications. But to answer the question, what are your thoughts on creating a a rating system similar to what Yelp has done for restaurants. And of course, it's a very different industry, but yet something that is legitimate, professional, done at a mass scale. So patients have a very easy time saying, if I've got colon cancer, I'm going to go to this one easy to use site and I'm going to get information on who does the most number of colon cancer surgeries, who are the doctors that do it, and what are the outcomes? Unfortunately, without having the comprehensive electronic health system, getting all that information for anyone to get the information is next to impossible. Mm -hmm. Even with it, it's difficult to be able to wade through really millions and millions of records to answer the questions that you're asking. But what I think we could do is to start educating consumers with a given problem about what is most important in getting their treatment. Now you point out a very important area, which is the experience of the individual doing that procedure. I'll give you two examples. So women needing hysterectomy, having their uterus taken out, there are two operations that can be done. One is a abdominal incision, it's a long incision. It requires several days in the hospital and uh, takes six weeks to fully recover after that surgery. The second is laparoscopic, two small little puncture wounds, uh, the work being done through sort of a telescope. And uh, that operation is often going to be done as an outpatient, and uh, people are often back to normal activities within a week or two. As you might gather, it's actually more difficult to do it through the small incision mm -hmm. than the big incision, but much, much better for the patient. The key the question is going to be, how much volume do you need to do, not minimum volume, but to be optimally good? And I asked that question to the um, women OBGYN surgeons in Kaiser Permanente, and they said about two to three cases a month, 24 to 36 a year. Hmm. What we know is in the United States today, half of the surgeons do fewer than 10 a year, and we know is that half of the time they therefore use an abdominal incision. Now, think about that. It's not that it's a better procedure. 
It's that that's the limitations of the physician. And in the context of a fee-for-service world, doctors are just reluctant to send the patient to someone who is better. That's why they say the systems of care organizations like Kaiser Permanente that are integrated, that are paid on a capitated basis, the doctors will do that. I'll give you an example myself. I had an unfortunate accident. I was walking down steps on a rainy day, and the gentleman behind me slipped and fell and came crashing into me and broke my leg. I went to the nearest Kaiser Permanente emergency department. I saw the orthopedic surgeon there. I knew him actually very well. He's a fabulous surgeon. He then did two things that were remarkable. Number one, he said to me, I'll do your surgery if you'd like, but there's a surgeon who has better, more experience in your particular operation than I do, and I'd like to refer you to him. Now, try and think of that happening again in a different context I just in a fee-for-service world. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. Number two, what he said is you don't actually have to see him. He has your electronic health record and I'll arrange a video visit. So I met him virtually, didn't need him physically to shake his hands until the day of surgery. And again, how often could that happen? Did I really want, with a broken leg and all the pain, to be put into an ambulance, driven 15 miles away, brought 15 miles back? Everything was better. Not because the doctors were any better than the rest of the doctors. They were superb. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's a lot of great doctors everywhere. But the system, the context, shaped their perception. The first orthopedic surgeon, his perception was, how do I get Dr. Pearls and get the best possible outcome? My colleague has done more of these, specializes in them. Let me offer that. Why should I put them through extra pain and suffering? Total joints are another great example. What we know is that uh, the more surgeries you do, not only do you get better actually at the procedure itself with better outcomes, but more importantly, you start to focus on the other opportunities for the patient. And so if there's a high volume orthopedic center, they most likely have in place all the steps necessary to allow you to go home the same day starting before the surgery with patient education, with patient training, making sure the house is, is well set up mm-hmm. for a patient who's had surgery, and then they'll put in place the post-operative physical therapy requirements. All of that process will allow people to not only have a better outcome, but to recover faster and to walk sooner. The most important question to ask the surgeon is how many laparoscopic hysterectomies that you didn't do last year, and if they didn't do 20 or 30, my advice is find another surgeon. How many total joints did you do last year? They didn't do 50. My advice is to seek a someone with more experience to find out whether you're going to have to spend several days in the hospital after a procedure, and if you have any question in your mind, to be able to seek a second opinion I think we can educate people about the right questions to ask. I'm not sure we actually can extract the data out of the records that exist today. Would it make sense for any entrepreneur listening to this podcast to embark on the journey of creating a system? And even if we ignore previous data, we, we begin from scratch. We say, you know what, starting today, we will work with any doctor that's willing to work with us in tracking the number of, and it's, it's three basic questions, right? It's how many surgeries have you done? Or how many procedures have you done? What types? And what are your outcomes? Or do you think that there's a cultural problem and that 
it's not just even about going back and trying to bring all the the archaic data in. It's more about the culture and the doctors would not be willing and the system would not be willing to provide that data. Well, again, I think context shapes perception that changes behavior. And if the context is one that's going to be problematic, then I think people are going to be less likely to want to participate. We've seen that in some of the national leapfrog surgeries, uh, surveys at the hospitals that are going to have the lower numbers are not likely to participate. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not, yeah, again, I'll go back to that same theme around context perception and behavior. I think the first step for someone to create would be the guide to the patient. What are the key questions in this area? Because how would you know that you need 50 total joint surgeries but only 25 hysterectomies? Right. And in some areas it may be 10, in some areas it may be 100. And so being able to give people a reference guide, I think, is something. I like I mean, If I had a problem and I didn't know the answer and it was available online, I would certainly go and consult it. No, that's a great idea. So now I know, uh, Dr. Pearl, why you like telemedicine, because you've experienced it yourself. Uh, you're a big, big fan of it. You talk a lot about it in the book. And yet, even though it represents a significant improvement in our, in our experience and the efficacy of, of the um, patient-doctor visit, yet it's had minimal adoption. And you talk about the fear-based culture, risk management issues. How do we change that? I personally can tell you it should be the future. It should be a mandate. There should be no reason for me to have to lug two kids out for a simple visit to get something looked at. It should be done by telehealth. But how do you suggest, what, what do we do to make that happen, that it gets mass adoption? So in this treated, I offer near the end a roadmap to the future. And the roadmap to the future is based upon these four pillars. That the care is integrated both horizontally within the department and vertically between primary care and specialty care, outpatient and patient care. That the care is capitated, that it's prepaid, paper value rather than paper volume. Uh, that the technology be available, uh, that's 21st century, both the comprehensive electronic health record and the tools like video. And that it be physician-led because doctors are simply not going to follow hospital administrators or insurance executives. They will follow colleagues that they know and they trust. Mm -hmm. The um, issues around telehealth, and in many of these areas, we use a word that has a lot of different meanings. If by telehealth, one means simply the ability to have a video visit with a physician, but that physician doesn't have access to a comprehensive electronic record, a physician can't assure that you've had the uh, proper follow-up, uh, then they're not going to be able to offer much value to you. You know, as I say, my dad's death had his physicians had a comprehensive record. They would have noticed. Everyone would have noticed and taken care of the fact he had never had that new vax, uh, vaccine, right. uh, the pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, but they didn't have that information. So I think that telehealth is less about being on a computer and a, and a physician on a computer. It's having a physician with access to your comprehensive record on the video with you, knowing that they can now communicate to other physicians. Because that's, if the orthopedic surgeon at the second hospital didn't have my electronic health record, he would not have known my full medical history. He would not have been able to visualize the uh, radiographs uh, that were completed. And then he could not have figured out exactly what I needed and made all the plans 
but he had that the same comprehensive electronic health record. Give me some examples, though. Uh, your video is not just doctors and patients. So today in Northern California, we have a stroke-trained neurologist available using video to see every patient in the 20 emergency departments as they walk through. So the neurologist trying to make a very important decision. Is this patient really having a stroke? Are they having a type of stroke that would benefit from a very powerful drug that breaks up the blood clot or restores the circulation? Can now begin at the start of the experience rather than what happens in the typical emergency department where they see an ED physician who then does some testing, consults a neurologist who comes in and provides the care. What's the difference? The difference is that now this clot-busting drug is given to the right patients, the appropriate patients, in under 30 minutes, not in an hour. The difference, lower mortality, more brain function saved. There's another example of that. About 4% of people who have a chest, what's called CT study, are found to have, uh, sorry, about 4% of people who are in a chest CT study are found to have a nodule in their lung. Uh, about 4% of the cases, it's a cancer. The problem is that the intervention to demonstrate that it's a cancer has a lot of associated complications because it requires that uh, invasive procedures be done to biopsy and find a piece of that nodule. So making that determination is complex. And what happens in most of American medical care today is that position A sends the patient to position B, onto C, to D, and E, and ultimately people try to reach a consensus. It often takes six weeks to uh, figure out the right answer. Mm -hmm. In Kaiser Permanente today, as soon as the radiologist sees this unexpected nodule in the lung, he sends a secure or she sends a secure message to a thoracic surgeon, a pulmonologist, an oncologist. He sends with it the information or the link to the relevant parts of the electronic health record. Each of those experts, they could be hundreds of miles apart, begin to analyze that patient's situation and the x-rays immediately. And within 48 hours, a game plan is done. And within 10 days, the appropriate procedure has been accomplished. The use of modern technology in the context of an integrated system, one in which people collaborate and cooperate, one in which the prepayment allows people to recognize how advantageous it is to go ahead quickly before complications develop, and ones that have and embrace this full electronic health record, those are the ones that are going to give you the best care, the highest quality, mm -hmm. in the most shortest amount of time with the fewest complications. So you talk about tech innovation in healthcare being a three-like tool. And uh, you talk about that it's how to improve quality of health, how to cut cost of care, and finally, who will pay. Sort of those are the three critical things as we look at tech innovation in healthcare. Where do you believe is the opportunity? So if you were an entrepreneur today, knowing the context, knowing the culture, challenges we face, what would you, what would you build? Where would you start? Well, I see it a little bit differently. What I, what I see is that what technology has the ability to do is to raise the quality of care and make it more convenient. And my belief is that if the most efficient and effective technology is used, that the costs come down. And that, in my way, and remember, I'm a physician, so I'm thinking about this in terms of the doctor and the patient, 
mm-hmm. is how I approach the, the problems. And in that context, much of the technology is actually already available and reasonably priced. So as an example, we've talked about video. I gave you some examples of how video gets a diagnosis sooner, gets the right diagnosis, mm-hmm. how video allows physicians to intervene sooner. And certainly, if uh, video allows your problem to be taken care of in a more efficient and effective way, then you're not wasting a lot of your time and missing work. So one technology is in video and figuring out how to um, get the supporting information, I think, is key. This is the electronic health record. And my hope would be at some particular point that the large manufacturers would open their APIs and that third-party developers could come in and now take the disparate systems that exist and put it together into a single application so now they could transform information technology from the 20th century to the 21st century. And they could now make this available for every physician, not just those that are in large multi-specialty medical groups. A second big area is that of uh, data analytics. And so as an example today, um, our systems in Kaiser Permanente allow us to follow all the thousands of patients in our hospitals on any given day and to figure out which ones are likely to deteriorate tonight and end up in an ICU tomorrow. Why is that important? Because once you deteriorate, once your, once your problems get worse, even though you end up in the ICU and surviving, you have a four times, sorry, and, and surviving the acute event, you have a four times higher mortality over the course of the entire hospitalization. And so that opportunity to be able to use that, um, not just in the ICU, we also do the same in the emergency department, figuring out who we might be sending home that we're gonna see back the next day and therefore reconsider whether to discharge them to the emergency department or admit them to the hospital. Or we're looking at children who are born who may be having a sepsis, may be having an infection, but we can't really be sure the data analytics allows that to happen. What's the problem? You need a lot of medical information. We have 12 million electronic health records, so that's why we can extract this information. I think for a small entrepreneur, it's really tough to do. I think some of the bigger companies will be able uh, to, uh, to look at that uh, going forward. So those are a couple of the opportunities that I think exist today for uh, someone who is going to be developing systems, figure out how you can take the EHRs and bring them together, figure out how you can use data analytics, and look at opportunities around video. I think the other challenge has to do with the monetization. And sometimes it's very difficult to monetize information technology advances. And I believe that the reason is people often take some development they have, let's say the ability to monitor uh, a variety of medical functions. We know it can be done. Um, Most of the the watches created by the technology companies and most of the wearable devices that can be purchased allow this to be uh, done. The question is, what's the problem it's trying to solve? And so I recommend to entrepreneurs, they start with, what's the problem we're trying to solve? We're not trying to get hundreds of EKGs or rhythm strips to physicians. Physicians don't want to see hundreds of strips. Right. We're not trying to get a massive amount of data on diabetes to every physician out there. The doctors just don't have the time to go through it. What do we really need? We really need someone to build into the device an analytic tool 
that's going to warn the patient when they're at risk and then have the patient call the physician and say, I'm worried because my monitor has told me that I've now had a certain amount of abnormality over the past 24 hours or a week, depending upon what the particular biological measures are going to be. And what's the challenge there? The challenge there is the malpractice. And so device companies have been afraid to create these kind of, I'll say, intelligent devices that have data analytics built into the monitoring function so that patients can now know when it is significant and when it is not, rather than simply dumping it all into the physician's electronic health record, where the physician doesn't want it there because it will simply clog up the system and slow it down. And number two, where the physician is not going to take the time to review all that information if they don't suspect that there's a problem going on. Absolutely. Uh, one of the very important points that you make in your book is around physician composition, uh, physician compensation. And you talk about the compensation being linked to outcomes or a number of procedures. And of course, clearly, when you link physician compensation to number of procedures, number of pills, the outcomes will be different than if you link the physician compensation to pure outcomes, which is prevention. How do we change current paradigms so doctors get compensated on the quality of outcome? Especially, how do we calculate and price value? Because I think that's where it's a brilliant idea. In fact, I don't know if you've heard the story about this village where the, the village had one doctor and that doctor was actually paid a subscription model-based pricing where the doctor received a monthly fee from every home in that, in that village up until someone fell sick. When they fell sick, they basically stopped paying the doctor. Now, it was the doctor's job to get that family healthy again so he could start, she could start receiving payments again. Great model. Incentives are aligned. Everybody wants everyone to be healthy. But then we look at things like the dollars for docs report, and we see the trend between more prescriptions and the dollars in the docs report, we look at the extremely high rates of prescription pills, drug overdoses, and all the terrible outcomes. So clearly the point you make about linking physician outcome, physician compensation to quality outcomes makes a lot of sense. How do we calculate and price that? And how do we make that again into a standard of care? Well, you know, I'll go back to the conversation we had on perceptions, first of all which is that we don't value value. So if I can use the word twice, one is a verb and one is a noun, uh, appropriately. You know, we would much rather avoid a stroke in the first place right. than have someone who's an interventional radiologist go into our neck and either pull out a quad or open up a blood vessel. But that's not the way we pay primary care versus specialty physicians. We'd much rather... Uh, avoid colon cancer in the first place and get a very expensive drug that often prolongs life by a matter of uh, weeks or maybe a month or two. But that's not how the media values that based upon the amount of space that they allocate to each of those uh, uh, situations and opportunities that sit there. And as you said, we value, we value very much being able to have the problem solved without having to drive to the local emergency department or without having to go to the physician's office. But that's not the way that doctors value a video visit versus an in-person. And it all goes back to this issue that I said at the beginning. Context shapes perception, shapes behavior. I, every time 
someone has tried to put in place a pay for performance system, it's failed. And it fails because doctors are very smart. Remember, they pass all these tests in order to be able to become physicians. Right. And there's a way to get the outcome, you know, tell me the answer to the question and I'll get there, as opposed to doing the why. The why being, in the end, what the patient needs, the why we chose medicine for our career. All of those positive outcomes get distorted as soon as we try to have a dollar measure. I go back to this notion. We've got to integrate care. Physicians have got to work together as a single team, both horizontally within departments and vertically between primary care and specialty care. They've got to be paid in a capitated way. That's what you were describing in your question. Entire villages paying in a capitated way. So it aligns the incentives of what patients want with the physician compensation in terms of prevention, avoid some medical error, uh, better management of chronic disease. They've got to have the information technology that links people together and allows them to do the right thing for the patient, and it requires physician leadership sitting in play. Once you have those pieces, now you can develop a competitive model. And as I say, if you go to the, the National Committee for Quality Assurance website, you'll see a 1,000 organizations rated. And we're doing this increasingly, you know, with a, often with a five-star rating, whether it's the Medicare Advantage or the NCQA or a lot of the uh, state-run exchanges. And that opportunity to now see that information. But it goes back to the question that you said very early in our conversation today, which is that the information is there. Patients just need to check it out and follow it. As you said, President Clinton went to the hospital with the lowest rated quality outcomes, the highest rate of complication, and lo and behold, he got a complication. <laughs> so you pick the organizations whose outcomes are not as good as others, your outcomes will not be as good. That's not the way as patients that we see it because, as I said, the way our minds work is we don't see that reality. We see the perception, because as you said before, our neighbor told us that Dr. Smith is very good, or simply having made a choice. Behavioral economics says that once you make a choice, we value that far more than the objective data would say. We've got to understand that although we are incredibly smart people as human beings, that our perception, our conclusions, and therefore our actions often don't make objective sense. And let me close by giving you one last story from my dad, because I think it's the one in a sense that unites together all the people who might be listening to this podcast right now. I told you that although he spent three weeks in the hospital for the acute problem that he had, he didn't die at that time, but he ultimately developed a bleed into his brain from some of the medications that he ended up having to take. My brother and I fly out from California to Florida. We arrive and there's doctors lined up at his door. The EMT doctor wants to do a tracheostomy. The gastrointestinal physician wants to put in a feeding tube. The neurosurgeon wants to take out some bone to allow his brain to swell. The brother and I are both physicians. We know this is not gonna end well. It's not what my dad wants. And we thank them all. And we say he doesn't want any intervention. We never again saw a physician there is no CPT code to bill for compassion. There is no way in the thesis service system of today that physicians get paid for simply talking to the family, 
at their time of greatest need. The American healthcare system is broken. The result is that people get mistreated. My hope is that people will read mistreated and it will connect with the patient and everyone, but they will start to demand more and make better informed choices. And as a result of that, hundreds of thousands of people will live who otherwise would die. My father's death will have served the purpose. Thank you. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for writing the book, for sharing your insights, for your incredible commitment to really helping reshape our healthcare. Three trillion dollars. God knows we need some we need some re-architecting and some reform. Thank you so much for your time again. And let's hope we can all see a whole new, more beautiful healthcare world to live in for our kids. Thank you very much again. And I look forward to hearing the comments from the listeners after they've had a chance to read the book. Absolutely. And for the rest of you, tune into our next episode to Living Longer, Healthier, and Happier. Until then, make sure you check out the show notes. We'll have a bunch of links in there. And have a great day. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.